Greetings, and welcome to Broken Boxes Podcast. This episode marks the second time featuring artist and friend Raven Chacon on the project. The first time I interviewed Raven was in 2017, when I visited with him at the Institute of American Indian Arts, where he was participating in a symposium on indigenous performance titled Decolonial Gestures. This time around, we met up with Raven at his home in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where recurring host and artist Chinupahanska Luger chatted with Raven for this episode. The conversation reflects on the arc of Raven's practice over the past decade, along with the various projects they have been able to work on together, including Sweetland, an award-winning multi-perspectival and site-specific opera staged at the State Historical Park in downtown Los Angeles, for which Raven was composer and Chinupa co-director and costume designer. Raven and Chinupa also reflect on their time together traveling up to a Chetishakoyan camp in support of the water protectors during the 2016 resistance of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Raven provides context to his composition Storm Pattern, which was a response to being on site at Standing Rock. And the artists speak to the long-term impact of an indigenous solidarity gathering of that magnitude. Raven also speaks about being named the first Native American composer to win the Pulitzer Prize for Voiceless Mass, and shares the composition's intention and performance trajectory. To end the conversation, Raven shares insight around staying grounded while navigating the pressures of success, travel, and touring as a practicing artist, and reminds us to find ways to slow down and do what matters to you first creatively wherever possible. So, as we head into 2024, today, I just wanted to invite you to show some love for the podcast if you've been enjoying it. This is our 10-year anniversary. It's a big year for the project. And if you've enjoyed listening to it, if you've just found it recently, or if you're going through the archive, or if you've been a diehard fan since 2014, write us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so that uh, we can reach further, so that more people can learn about the work and the archive can be shared further. There's lots of exciting things coming up in this year, um, some of which involve the podcast itself, some of which involve uh, larger Broken Boxes projects, um, generating of content through exhibition, performance, all of that kind of stuff. So please stay tuned. Thank you very much. I'm going to read Raven's bio and then we'll just jump right in with the conversation between Raven and Chinupa. Happy 2024. Raven Chacon is a Pulitzer Prize winning composer, performer, and installation artist from Fort Defiance, Navajo Nation. As a solo artist, Chacon has exhibited, performed, or had works performed throughout the United States and globally. A recording artist whose work has spanned 20 years, Chacon has appeared on more than 80 releases on various national and international labels. Chacon is the recipient of multiple prestigious awards, including being named a 2023 MacArthur Fellow. His solo artworks are in many public and private collections. You can read Raven's full bio and learn more about his practice in our show notes. Okay, cool. What's up? (laughs) 
Hey, Raven, Chacon. Hey. Thank you for inviting us over for dinner. Yeah. It's very nice. I, I'm actually looking forward to catching up with you in general. Um, it's been, shoot, a few months and a lifetime in between the last time we've seen each other, it feels like. I know you've been busy cruising around. And I just kind of wanted to reflect on, I don't know, maybe where, where we met, just to give context between our relationship, but I really want to dive into uh, some of the successes you've had in the last year or so, two years. And, you know, because this is a second interview on Broken Boxes, you know, going back to that period, which I believe was recorded in 2017, like how, how much has changed in that time? And, and it's, uh, we got to know each other over that time and, and I'm kind of interested in, in, I don't know, catching up, seeing how it's going and then just reflecting on how, fu how fucking different everything is also. Yeah. And what's the same? Yeah, so we met, you know, it's, all, it's always a blur. I mean, there's like, when you go back five years, anything past that's a blur. But I know I'd heard of Ginger and, and you just here and there, you know, between Santa Fe and Albuquerque and Ginger doing gigs down here. And then uh, Candace and I had seen some of your work up in Santa Fe. And then um, I was just saying that we saw you at some kind of banquet or something, <laughs> some kind of uh, art pitch uh, was, banquet yeah. thing. It was and, an uh, art pitch banquet. Yeah. I think it was for like five grand. Yeah. Like yeah. some sort of... Uh, I don't know, pitch, pitch to Santa Fe elites for crumbs off of their plates. And you didn't get it, I'm, I'm guessing, right? Uh, <laughs> I, didn't. I don't think I did. I, didn't. I don't think I did. You yeah. saw it. You saw I saw it. And it was a great, it was a great <laughs> speech. And, the, you know, it might have freaked some of them out up there. And maybe, uh, but yeah, that's, it was, uh, that, I think that was the first time I heard you talk about your work. And uh, we met there. And then, but you know, you know, there's performances, there's hanging out, there's, Many times people cross paths, and on, on my end, like, I, I sometimes can't remember the later the night gets, you know, what, what, you know who I'm encountering, and uh, I, I won't remember the next morning. But, uh, but eventually, we, we, uh, you invited me up to Standing Rock, and that was the first time we got to hang out, I mean, nonstop for like 10 days or something, a yeah. week. Yeah, yeah. And I think you kind of invited yourself. Did I? <laughs> Did I? <laughs> How was that? Well, because I don't know. I was trying to think about it, and I wouldn't even know where to reach you at. And um, I don't know how our... I think at the time, there was so much information being passed back and forth between Native people and, like, through social media and all of those different platforms. It was all really fresh at that time. Yeah. It was, like, 2016, right? Yeah. Um, I was, like... I wouldn't know how to get a hold of Raven. So I think Raven DM'd me or something like that. And uh, yeah, I probably invited you up. Or it was like, well, I'm going up there in Let's go. two weeks. Yeah, if you want to roll. Yeah. And then yeah. you were like, yeah. That, that was totally it. Yeah, I remember you saying you're going up there. And I was like, hell yeah. Because I was so confused about what was going on. I didn't know anybody from who's from that area. I knew a lot of people wanting to help. A lot of people saying, you know, this is going on. This, and I'm, I'd ask them, I'd be like, are you there? And they're like, no, but I saw it on so-and-so's mm -hmm. feed. And I was just super confused and wanting to be more um, aware of what was happening. 
Well, then there was so much misinformation. Like, what, even on social media, you're getting these honest responses. You're, you're seeing video from on the ground because, like, at that time, uh, Facebook Live actually uh-huh. just released, you know? Yeah. So you started seeing things like that, but then, you know, in the classic form that we're all used to now with, with social media and, and how it operates, it's like there could be a cat sitting 150 miles away in fucking South Dakota somewhere. Yeah. And it looks the same, you know, and they could be like, dude, the cops just shot my kid, you know, or something. There was a lot of like sideways information that came on that was like amplifying it in ways that, I don't know, even when you go up there, I I always felt like what we were seeing was like, just the trauma response, you know, but that there was like really beautiful things like 80% of it was actually really cool kind of community building, but that wasn't like, um, that was no way to, to, you know, start a revolution was like people hanging out and, you know, singing round dance songs or something like that late into the evening. Yeah. Surely that, that resulted in, you know, long lasting friendships, people meeting each other. I mean, (laughs) I think I have a niece who uh, came out of <laughs> Standing Rock, you know, was, was from the union of, of some meetings there and uh, a meeting there. And it's like, yeah, a lot of uh, overall just people coming together in one central location is powerful. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it was probably a lot of collisions of different kinds of people that uh, I don't know what happened because of those, you know, what what the outcome of that was, other than just bringing attention to the cause of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if something had really gone down, that would have been both really interesting and really scary because of how many people were there who were ready to do something more direct. But um, as you and I you know, were talking up there, that never happened. There was no leadership for that to ever come down. Yeah. So that's the scary part is what would have happened if, um, you know, Creator forbid, some you know something jumped off like that, and nothing did as far as um, you know. Uh, I mean, there were some incidences, but there was nothing that uh, was catastrophic. Totally, but we also know how that ends, right? Yeah. Like we've seen that before. You know, it's it's not like um, it's not like there wasn't like there were people down and ready. You know, yeah. in in these in these positions and amped. You know. And so having a little bit of, um, I don't know, the lack of, of one central leadership and like, you know, even at the camp, there was, everything was kind of like spaced out. You had yeah. like, you know, there's Diné camp over here, you know, there's a Hawaiian camp over there, you know, there's all of these kind of like different things coming together. And, uh, and then you had these conversations around like, okay, this is what the elders are saying. So there was all of these factioned kind of sections throughout the camps. And then there was all of these orders coming down from like elders, but you never like actually saw any of the elders, you know, it was like, oh, the elders said, this is what we should do, or this is what we shouldn't do. But it always like shuck out from some like non-elder yeah there was like a there was like an imaginary elder that kept giving orders and <laughs> nobody would say where that elder was from or who they were or uh even exactly what we should do they just said what we shouldn't do right and um you know in a funny way that's kind of a larger metaphor for i don't know some of this kind of thing i think we as native artists push against is um 
a lot of, you know, we have a lot of strong traditions. We have a lot of beauty in the way, you know, our ways, but there's also a lot of things we're told not to do that might be outdated, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think artists, native artists really should look at those, you know, and see, you know, why, why not question? Why not? Yeah. 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 Well, and uh, I mean, I, I've noticed that even in my own life, even just going back home and, and trying to find things, you know, things that were misplaced or a lot of times it falls on this position of we don't ask that question or this is what we do, you know, and, and I'm always like, yeah, but why? Because I'm really interested in why yeah. this taboo or this protocol was developed, you know, yeah. I'm like, what, what was its, what was its cultural purpose? What, what did it do for the community to not do or do it this way? Yeah. And like, I don't know, I've found that, that 30 33% of the time, somebody has an answer. But the other two thirds, they are, they say, we don't ask that question, you know? And, and what I learned was like, oh no, you didn't ask that question. Like you never asked why, you just followed along. And, and then because you didn't know, you say, we don't, we yeah. don't, you know? Or that's the way we've always done it. Yeah, and. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I'm like, that's, doesn't, how does that not automatically trigger this like, no, you've never always done anything, you know, like yeah. you, uh, you didn't even breathe air when you were in the womb, you know, like yeah. we don't always do ev anything. So like, why do we do it? Cause I'm, I'm interested in that. Yeah. And I think you're right. Like the role of the artist, I mean, in the present context of what an artist is, we're still, you know, in the process of maintaining or developing culture, right? Mm -hmm. Collectively mm -hmm. or, or, uh, communally. Well, we're, we're in a position to, make new worlds or expand our worlds and anytime somebody says no you can't do that then you should ask why as you're saying and uh, because otherwise it's limiting that expansion right it's limiting that creation of this other world and even maybe that other world should not exist but i have faith that artists can allow it to exist for just for a little bit yeah you know well we are already inviting somebody into an illusion right like this is this is both real and make-believe yeah i think that's why that incident was so profound especially to go i know you were going back and forth many times but we we all knew it was a temporary thing a temporary encampment a temporary gathering and so it was like this portal this temporary uh reality or yeah. this alternate reality almost like a like a philip k dick kind of thing where like <laughs> you know this all these people are right here in the middle of nowhere and they're coming from all over it's like uh yeah the adjustment bureau or something like yeah that. <laughs> yeah it's some kind of dream and we're all here and we really don't know why we know the reason we've been told why and we know there's an encroachment of a pipeline but we really don't know what to do right and but there was i mean the other thing is like that was had there ever in the history of of the Americas been a gathering like that from so many different tribes? You know what I'm saying? Like there were people who gathered who had never gathered before, you yeah, know, yeah. and there were a bunch of like, um, I don't know, the solidarity <laughs> through proximity. You know, it's like, do you need firewood? We're cutting firewood. I'm going to bring you firewood. I remember just like, you know, doing uh, a powwow dance when I was younger. And just going to powwows in general and stuff like that, but there was always this kind of like posturing around um, your tribal affiliations, mm -hmm. you know? 
and that like there may have been bad blood from a long time ago so you're kind of judgy on other tribes or something like that yeah but i remember that that first time um when we were up there it was like early in the summer meeting people under a different context where they weren't like puffy chested you know where they weren't like oh i'm i'm ho-chunk you know or something along those lines but they were uh introducing themselves in the way that we always introduce themselves ourselves you know Mm -hmm. it's like you know here's me here's my my family here's my lineage you know um this is where i'm from and it was not posturing it was like getting to know you you know yeah and that was weird for me uh just in general you know as far as like moments of of i mean shoot i went to school at the at iaia here in new mexico and even there there was this like uh tension between tribes you know Mm -hmm. and jokes and play and all of that sort of stuff but yeah that instance there was it was different and like like you said like a dream it was like uh i don't know yeah it was it was it was strange because it was it was a bit like i remember when you and i had arrived that that time and went to a place to went looking for a place to camp and then um we were looking at all these different kinds of cordoned off uh bordered yeah. you know communities that were inside the larger encampment so you had the kind of more militant folks you had the art camp you had you know obvious uh, kind of regional areas northwest coast hawaiian like totally you said. totally and uh it it was beautiful in some ways to be able to identify that but then yeah it just seemed like more and more it seemed like a microcosm of of uh, the UN or something, you know, the kind of thing we're trying to fight against or, right. the, or dissolve, you know, and, and so it was bizarre. And um, I mean, it, even funny to, to think of the artists having their own nation. What does that mean? You know, does that, as, as we pointed out, I mean, they're the ones maybe taking up the most resources you know, to- at the same totally. time. They're using totally. up all the electricity, they're using up a lot of water. The screen print t-shirts and uh, this and that oh, it was so important though that's the ephemera yeah yeah <laughs> yeah no that is that is fascinating i mean like i keep even thinking of of um like there were direct action camps i, I mean there was a uh a fracturing within this um you know Ocheti Shikoni, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the people. The fracturing and the, and the seg- segmenting of all of these different regions and people. And I, I'm always interested in that because, you know, you, you recognize, like, as Native people, there was this, you know, hundred years of us being a singular people, you know, the, mm-hmm. the wild Indian and then the noble savage and then the, the ward of the state, you know, these mm-hmm. different kind of uh, umbrella ideas around who we are, were but even when we came together there there maintained complexity in yeah. our in our practices and um i don't know i'm i'm thinking about all of this and i'm i'm bringing it up cuz i'm really interested in uh when you came you i remember you saying you wanted you wanted some clarity you didn't want to just rely on what was being sent through social media and what you were what kind of everybody was observing what developed from that for you well yeah you know i I went up, I wanted to see from my own eyes what was happening. I wanted to be there as a witness, help in any way I could. But I think it was for, and I, and I also recognized just our own bodies uh, were going to have some power that was going to bring attention to that place, native and non-native. Just a, the, if a critical mass could 
gather there and not ruin the land more than the pipeline, mm -hmm. um, that that would be a good thing. But I also was, you know, a, a large part of what I do when I can is make field recordings. And I even hesitate to call them field recordings because it's so anthropological. But, um, you know, I took, I took this recording device and, and it was more, it was less to, I, I know you, you, you struggle with this word, you, you, it's something you've spoken about before, capturing recordings yeah. or photography and... Um, and, but for myself, it, it was to, because I was certain I was going to need another set of years there to just remember, come back years later and just be like, what, what, what was that like? You know, what was, what were we hearing? What was the sonic environment? And I still, you know, every now and then, you know, boot up the playlist and listen to one of these recordings because there's so much fascinating things happening. It's like a, it's like this crossfading as you walk around of, yeah, these different camps and these different, uh, things happening, this different, you know, some angry energy, some beautiful energy, some, you can almost hear the smell of the cooking mm. in the recording. So I, 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 I had, you know, expected that having some, something to go back to was going to be important to me. And I'm, you know, I'm not a, a videographer or filmmaker. I'm definitely not a journalist. I wasn't sticking a microphone in anybody's faces, but I just yeah, kept I don't it in my pocket the whole time, you know? Uh, the whole time? Pretty much, yeah, when I had batteries. The, I mean, the, the weather uh, limited the battery life by <laughs> half, you know, so cold. <laughs> uh, but yeah, as much as I could, you know, if I was hearing something I thought was important or if it was one of the kind of actions that were about to jump off, I'd turn it on and just uh, leave it on until uh, I remembered to turn it off. Like a spy? A little bit like a spy, yeah, yeah, you could say that. Not it, now, now, because I, I don't remember seeing a microphone ever. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. The thing I wasn't interested in was um, uh, covertly getting anybody's conversations. Yeah. It was more of um, the ambient environments. So I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't like an undercover cop, if you will. But it's funny because. I mean, I, I could talk about this oh, later. Let but, me ask you this, though, actually. Yeah. Were you concerned about that at the time? Because there was, like, heavy... Um, I, I, I think while you were there with us up there, there was heavy, like, uh, what did they call it? Um, uh, there were straight-up narc uh, fears yeah. up there, yeah, for Oh, yeah, sure. totally. But, yeah. Uh, God, sur uh, not surveillance, security culture. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, that was a term I had never heard before, but they brought it up a lot, especially some of the, like, um, yeah. direct action groups, you know, that were, like, you know, planning to anchor themselves to machinery and stuff like that. There was, like, this, like, um, yeah, are you a narc? You yeah. know? <laughs> well, that was the, that was kind of the, one of the profound, I mean, every moment upon arrival was very profound, and the first one of those encounters was when, we arrived to the gate and somebody said, you know, who are you? And you introduced yourself and they, uh, you know, you had, they were not from the area. Yeah. They were from some other tribe somewhere else. And they had questioned us, you know, how do you know, you know, why are you here? And you told them, you know, you're from there, from the area and uh, who you were and your families. And uh, of course they let us through, but the hostility of that, to me, was pretty profound. Of course, you know they want to vet who's coming in because of that. But you're right; there was a culture of uh, being a cop. <laughs> there were cops there. I think there are people there who wanted, who secretly want to be cops, and they think they're doing the right thing. But the um, the tactic 
could only be learned from one place. Yeah. And that was other cops. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, did you think about that at all while you were cruising around with your uh, field recordings? So let me clarify for listeners. Uh, <laughs> this was just a recording device that it was put up, not to put it, not to get anything incriminating. Um, in fact, I didn't encounter anything incriminating, either either while I was there that I remember or on my recordings. But um, really, it is just to hear. A place to for it's they're very personal. That's mm -hmm. why that's why maybe that's one of my tactics to keep them non-anthropological. Is they're really for for me, and what I've excised from those is this piece, storm pattern, which is taken from just a snippet of the many times I heard a drone flying in the air, mm. and it was funny. You know, the first time out there that I heard a drone, I was thinking, oh geez, you know, that's the cops got a drone. But then I quickly realized this was a water protector drone. These were counter surveillance that was happening. And I hadn't encountered too many drones before that. Now they're pretty common. But back in 2016, I mean, this was something I had not heard all that much. So, so that snippet, there's a couple snippets that have made it into this sound piece. And it wasn't till later when I was putting them together that you know, when they when they start flying, the the motors aren't totally. Um, you know, they kind of have this pitch, this curved pitch. Yeah. As they reach their highest velocity, but once they're flying, they seem to be uh, emitting the pitch of A440, which is the 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 tone that orchestra is tuned to. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so the motors are just spinning at this. Uh, pretty much the uh, concert A, you know, and um, huh. and so I decided to turn that into a transcription, um, transcribing the paths that I was envisioning this drone to be flying around uh, the encampment, and turn that into a textile, a flag. It's going to take on different forms, but that's one of the one of the pieces I'm showing. It's 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 a piece that's being shown in the Broken Boxes exhibition. So the the flag is what like a like a visual score, like a graphic score. Yeah, yeah, it's a graphic score. It's um, the one that they have at the Albuquerque Museum. Yeah, it's it's a banner of sorts. But I've been making these flags for a while for these other kinds of graphic scores I've been making called American Ledger, and those are all directly inspired by. Flat, like different state flags and and the United States flags and the and just the use of flag as a as a tool. Yeah, yeah. Or a signal. A signal. Um, also, something that's gathering an identity of of people. So maybe the ensemble is you know under this flag, so to speak. Um, <laughs> they're also. I also wanted to take away the document of the score, you know, the piece of paper on the music stand. Right. And have everybody's attention, audience, ensemble, conductor, all looking at the same object, the same score. Huh. And so that, yeah, that series, the, the scores take on different forms. They all exist as a, as a flag that can be flown or hung, but then um, they also exist as billboards, Billboards, newspapers, walls, doors, other objects, scattered objects on the ground. Yeah. yeah. A440. 
Concert A. Yeah. I never even thought about that. I, I'm familiar with that sound. I think you're absolutely right. Drones, at this point, you know, they're they're not at the point in which uh, uh, we imagined the future to be, like, you know, food delivery and stuff like that. Like, that's happening, but it's not that ubiquitous yet. Mm-hmm. But the overexposure of that moment to the drone was was interesting. You know, the, at at Standing Rock, or even just the notion of surveillance and being a surveilled body. Mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. that's a weird thing. You know, thinking back to, I'm still thinking, <laughs> I'm appreciating you you uh, questioning why I had a field recorder in my pocket <laughs> because <laughs> fucking cop because a part of it. <laughs> I think about what I was expecting, and I was expecting dissonance. You know, two things that were not supposed to be uh, sounding in the same room, perhaps. Two pitches that are slightly out of key from each other, or mm. out of tune from each other. To, you know, to people who don't like this kind of music. <laughs> it's annoying. It's yeah. bad. Dissonance is bad. But... I was certain there was going to be that, you know, and I and what you bring up with hearing those drones in the air was a huge dissonance to reality. That we're out there in this beautiful land and then hearing these things above us, you know, when we want to be looking up at the sky, we want to be uh, looking to each other laterally, seeing the gathering of people and then we're conscious of this thing that's above us you know buzzing around us like some kind of insect you know and it's almost like you know you're looking for animals you're looking for insects you're looking for birds and yet there's this drone Um, so as much as we're being kept awake by the fear of the police coming to wake us up spray us with cold water you have the necessity of the counter surveillance that's uh, kind of corralling us in yeah. at the same time. No, I think it's. I mean, I think it's really. We- I, I think it's really weird. You know, it was a really weird instance. But the surveillance. I, I just think about like coming home from up there. That was the last thing that was hard for me to let go of. Was being surveilled. Mm. Like I remember when helicopters or, or small engine planes would fly over my house here in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. I would like duck under a tree, like not meaning to, yeah. but just carrying that, um, that mm. of being surveilled, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's interesting to, to look, at, look at the sound that it makes rather than the um, pressure of its eye, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. like, let's listen to it rather than know that it's watching us, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I think that was, that was why storm pattern became what it, was was to to understand and maybe even celebrate the the counter surveillance the the agency for fighting back looking back stewarding yeah. our own places and then just just kind of zigzagging through this you know it's so in the score itself you see these kind of patterns these these zigzags which could look like very you know traditional geometries but they're it's the dodging. It's the dodging so you can't get caught. And, uh, and not only of the drone, but... Serpentine. Yeah, of our own ways we have to navigate as, as Native people, as Native artists, to not be pigeonholed, you know. Um, that zigzagging happens every minute of us existing. So, you know, to, 
to hear you say that to come back into the you know into the city perhaps or into you know come back home and still feel that I think is is reflecting that you know is is speaking to that that way that we don't realize how much we have to zigzag on this earth yeah well that gives me a, a perfect segue okay. into zigzagging in another direction so from that point we um we hung out really tough and when you hang out in a tent you know and and there is that like tension in the air and all that sort of stuff i felt like i i got to know you pretty well at that point and um and you know, I, you're you're a, f- a dear friend to me from that moment. Like there weren't a whole lot of people who did. There were a lot of people who showed up, but there were not a lot a whole lot of people who showed up for with me, you know, and and for me. So I tr- I created a, a a trust with you at that point, and I'm really actually glad that you did that you agreed to come up with me on the on a whim because I really value our friendship. You know, and from from that point forward, we got to do a few pretty interesting things. You know, where you brought me on to uh, projects that were that were in the works, um, and one of, one of which was the uh, opera um, Sweetland, where you you uh, had been working on for a little bit, and we're looking for uh, talking with the the group around a costume designer. And uh, came on. I just remember some of the first conversations where you had told me you were like, "Hey, I'm doing this thing. It's pretty wild." But I dropped your name. Would you be interested in 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 doing it? And dude, there was no reason why I did that at all, except that you were. I was like, for real, you know? Like I trust. I trusted you. The the um, because it's a world outside of mine, you know. Yeah. Um, into opera, but I think you know as we talk about zigzagging, surveilling, uh, 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 adjusting artistically and creatively, your work as a composer had you had you because I never really asked had you ever worked on on an opera or a, um, in that form of composition before Sweetland? Yeah, um, no, thank you for saying that, and um, yeah, thanks again for inviting me up there at Standing Rock. Um, the yeah so in 20 i think it was 2018 it might even been back as far back as 2017 i had uh been contacted by uh opera director yuval sharon who does these wild operas i mean he i had heard about the works he was doing and uh, the crazy one that i had heard of and that brought him a lot of notoriety was the opera hopscotch that takes place in vehicles on the highways and freeways and streets of LA. And um, to experience this opera, you have to ride in the vehicles with the singers and you don't even know they're part of the, the production. And people jump out of cars, somebody else jumps in, somebody throws a notebook in the window of the moving vehicle, a guy drives by on a motorcycle and sings into the car, it's insane. So he contacted me to, to do a project and um, it was very exciting because I knew, you know, I knew his work. I didn't know him at all, but when I met him, he's, you know, one of the sweetest people, and um, he's he's somebody who um, I recognize as having a really interesting, create creative energy around him, and just an overall sweet person. Anyway, 
then the other side of that was that then he said, well, I'm making an opera about Thanksgiving. <laughs> and and my, my perception of him might have changed immediately once, he, once those words exited his mouth. But, um, I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, talk about zigzagging. I mean, we, we, if you zigzag too much, you, you end up getting zigzagging right into one of these situations, you know, mm-hmm. which you think you're getting away from. But, you know, we can't really ever get away from that. Of course, if somebody made an opera about the first Thanksgiving and didn't hire a native, we'd all be mad, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then we get mad when we get invited. To Shit, do... I'm mad that they got a Danae composer to talk about the first Thanksgiving, honestly. I know, right? Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, the truth is there's not that many native composers, unfortunately. And um, so we started working on the project, and right away... As the team grew, we brought on Du Yun, who's a, a composer who's a Chinese immigrant, a, a phenomenal composer. I mean, I, I am trained in music. I've written operettas before. I've written for the voice. I, I write notated Western music. I've studied orchestration, music theory, harmony, counterpoint. And uh, working on this project with Du Yun, I feel like I was learning stuff I would never learn in, hmm. in uh, you know, music school. Uh, she's just a true, amazing, brilliant composer and artist, and also very fierce. So her coming from China, in, in a strange way, she felt like a, like a relative. She felt like uh, you know somebody who's not native, but a, lo- a cousin from halfway around the world who gets <laughs> this shit, you know? She, too, did not want to write about the first Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Talk about a Navajo composer being very far from the <laughs> yeah. East Coast. She's halfway around the world, and she's asking, what the hell does this have to do with me? Yeah, what is Thanksgiving, yeah, what actually? Is, what <laughs> this is an American holiday? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she didn't know why she was there. And I think that she was the perfect person to bring into this because of that. Mm-hmm. Because the question is, what are we talking about? You know, what is the place we're talking about? What is this, um, you know, this idea of hosting somebody or somebody arriving from overseas and they get to stay and Duyun having to, you know, and her family having to work extremely hard to make it over here and for her to, you know, those sacrifices that she had done to get to where she is today. You know, it's an ongoing story. It's an ongoing story, for sure. and, And of course, between... The history of today and the history of those early European encounters with Native people is the is the black experience, the displacement of black folks, and slavery, and um, we wanted that perspective. And we had um, Douglas Kearney as a librettist come in very early, and I I did not I wasn't aware of his work either, but he and I had actually gone to Cal Arts at the same time. We'd, oh, we'd never crossed paths, so I, you know, we might have seen each other at a party, hung out, but I, we did not know each other or each other's work. And he, he is such another fierce person to, um, you know, who, who doesn't hold back, who questions all of this. And I, I really appreciated that. I mean, I had my own questions, but I, I didn't always have the right way of articulating what I, my frustration with the project. And in fairness, Yuval, too, he, he knew, he said, this project is strange. We're not trying to make a historical opera here. Yeah. Because we don't know what happened. 
Anyway, as we were working on this for a couple of years, we got to the point where the music was almost finished. The, the libretto was sure, you know, has to be finished before the music. Um, uh, my music was done. <laughs> uh, Dion was finishing hers. And we were getting That's to... That's because she's a professional. She's a professional, yeah. <laughs> um, and we started having the big question of, okay, how is this going to look? This has to look like something that Nobody's ever seen before. It has to, we're talking about an alternate universe tribe that does not exist, but is in a position to represent all indigenous people in, in North America. So surely it has to have a, an indigenous eye on it. And so you're one of the first people I thought of. And I thought, you know, I knew, I knew some of the things you were making regalias, masks, larger installations. And so it wasn't just costumes. You've always like this whole, the whole set, somebody's got to design all of this. Yeah. And so I, I, start, I asked Chinupa, I said, what do you think? Would you be into this? And, uh, <laughs> I remember how dumbfounded I was. And I, you know, also our producer over here, Ginger uh, Lindnell, my wife, went to school for uh, uh, set design and theater and she's kind of entrenched in all of that and I remember when I first was like oh Raven just asked if I should do this she was like of course you should fucking do it like you didn't even go to school for this you get this opportunity <laughs> yeah we had some great conversations early on I know that you've all called you right away and before I knew it <laughs> you were you were I was you know we we're excited you were on the project but then the next uh, time I talked to you all he said how would you feel if Chinupa came on as co-director? We, we spent hours on the phone talking. And uh, he's a brilliant artist. He, we need him. And I said, of course, let's do it. What did you really say, though? <laughs> let's go back to the film recording. And, uh, yeah, totally. No, I said, I said well, Are you I, sure? honestly, I said, does he, does he want to do it? <laughs> I mean, I know he's busy. And that was the thing. I said, I said you have Make sure he wants to do it, and, and he can call me if, you know, if he has any questions. And I think you and I talked, too, yeah. um, to see. And I, and I know nothing about opera direction. I know nothing about it. I, I mean, I learned so much from you and Yuval during that whole process to understand what it takes, but that's not, um, that's not, not what I do. I don't, well, you know. for me, what was interesting and, and you know, what kind of like put me into the yes, of course, is when do you get an opportunity like that, yeah. you know, um, especially without any training, without any of that. I do recollect calling you and asking, and, and it sticks with me to this day, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, but I was like, opera? You know, like, sh what, what's up? And I remember you saying, look, I, I work in classical music. You know, I've I, I worked in these scenes. All of the, you know, philharmonics are starting to consolidate this might be the last one. I remember you saying that and I was like, oh my God, yeah, okay. All right, I'm in, I'm in. It's true, <laughs> it's very true. Yeah, and I still believe that. It's a beautiful f form and medium. I mean, b having done this and, and becoming more aware of, of what people are doing. I mean, it's, it's all of these art forms being smashed together in this wild collage and Sweetland was definitely uh, evident of that, of the way that that can work, where to me, it, you know, and, and I know the guts of the thing, as we all do, but even being a, uh, somebody sitting in the audience, 
it reads like some kind of nightmare or dream, you know? It's like, just like Standing Rock was. You know, when they say, when they say you, you dream, you're actually not moving around in like this house. It's just that the walls are shape-shifting into the next room, you know? Right. And that's how Sweetland sounds and looks and feels. You're the one being displaced. You're the one who's, you know, it's always there and you're the one being forced to move around. Right. But it doesn't really feel like you're moving, you know? It's like you, you come back to the same place and it's changed. Well, and that's also, you know, state, like the other thing that gave me confidence to jump in into that position, you know, is one, I was like, director, that's, that's a big, that's a big leap, you know? But then like learning more about opera, I'm like, oh, the composer and the librettist, that's the opera. You know, the director shift every time it's produced somewhere else, you know? So I'm like, maybe it's not that important of <laughs> a position. But um, uh, what got me really excited about it was that, you know, you mentioned Douglas, but we also had Aja Kujwa-Duncan. Right. So right. there was two librettists. There's you and Duyun as composers, so there's two composers. And that's what Yuval, you know, came when he asked if I wanted to do it. He was like, look, we have two of everything else. I think we should have a second director. And uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, if yeah. you would be in, into it. And that balance was there, was, there was a native composer, a native librettist, and then there would be a native director. And I thought that was a really nice balance. The whole time we were trying to fight against these ideas of, like, affirmative action, right? <laughs> that there should be... You know, the native, it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's like, there has to be a native composer or a native librettist. But if there wasn't, you know, then, then we'd, be, we'd be mad about it, right? We yeah. would say, well, what happened here? And so it's only appropriate to start thinking about that. I mean, that there were pairs, that there were people to bounce ideas off of. It's, it's natural that this became two well, operas in, yeah. a, in a way where it wasn't like the natives worked on one opera and the non-natives worked on a different opera. The whole thing was... It was, you know, blended and, and melded together into something yeah, fascinating. Yeah, and I think it's, it's the, you know, the recognition of, like, plurality, right? Where yeah. there is, you know, um, these aren't points of intersection between all of these things. There are two things happening simultaneously. And that's, that's different than an intersection, you know? Right. That's, that's like, it's like both of these things are true. And, and when, when you're working on an opera that's based on, if it's referencing the first Thanksgiving or if it's referencing uh, colonialism as a, as a system or a mechanism, to recognize that there are multiple stories happening simultaneously, I think is a really strong way to remove the power from the dominant one, you know? Is mm -hmm. that like, oh no, these are both made up. And if, and if I can imagine, if you can imagine yours, I can imagine mine, and this is where they're contradictory, or this is where they uh, uh, omit one another or redact one another, you know, that there's, there's room to explore complexity in it. Yeah, yeah, and that, that complexity was essential because what we weren't trying to do was, we were not trying to make a historical opera. We were not trying to have a situation of what we were calling, you know, all of us sitting around, we were calling it the united colors of trauma, you know, <laughs> where we would, somebody would input what happened to their people, you know, the, the Douglas would talk about slavery, you know, we would have different, Duyan would talk about her experience. We didn't want to have this, oh, well, let's take turns giving our own perspectives on trauma. I think to have this set in this place that represented a lot of different people, but 
was non-historical. Again, an alternate universe made it complex, but it solved a lot of those those traps that would fall into this, yeah, this didactic uh, yeah. opera. Yeah. Well, and then so that was that was what twenty twenty when that, that was twenty when that released. Um, yeah, and it it did half the run, and then pandemic came and uh, shut down half the shows. Mm-hmm. And we filmed it. I remember the, a frantic filming evening. And then it was available on the internet for, uh, at, a, at a point in which we, <laughs> there was like content demand, you know? Yeah. So it did definitely travel through that circle, but it was, a com- it was different, you know? It was different on film than it was on the land because it omits Los Angeles. It omits the... the sounds of the train and the helicopters and how they are not synced necessarily, but Mm -hmm. just existing on their own systems, but somehow worked within that weird dreamscape, you know, framing of the environment shifting around you. And then we had a pandemic. I mean, there, it was, it's a, it was a crazy moment. It was, yeah, that was wild. I mean, one thing to point out too, is that Sweetland has a huge cast. I think, I don't think operas, usually have 30 uh, singers involved in them and um, another 30 mm. instrumentalists. What about two operas, though? Two operas. <laughs> Even if you cut the numbers in half, I mean, 15 per side is still a lot of characters, a lot of ensemble, but um, there's a lot of moving parts, let's yeah. just say that. So, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it was it was uh, quite a feat, and it, it well, let's, let's hope it happens again in some other form. But yeah, I mean, it, right out of the gates of the pandemic, you know, so strange that we're actually talking about a pandemic and a catastrophe and an apocalypse within our opera. And then a couple weeks later, the world shuts down. And then we have um, <laughs> an immediate document of the, the opera to show. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that time was, it, it, you know, every time I finish a big project, have this really kind of serene sense of um, just calm, like I, you know, I, like I can take a, a breath, and that I can um, maybe sleep for a day, and um, because that ended, and basically the whole world shut down. Yeah, it was it was very uh, liberating for me. I mean, I that was the first time I was able to not have to plan to get on an airplane in like two weeks or that week. Yeah. I've been doing that since 2008, I think, you know, and just traveling nonstop. But for two years there, I just, I I took about a month off as everybody did for the most part. I know some people had some hard times during that first month, but I found, I found it completely, maybe the most calm I've ever been in my life, to be honest with you. And I was reading books, and um, I was listening to music. You know, we all have a stack of books and records like we want to get to and never have the time. And I listened to all those. I read a lot. And then I after, just post them on social media yeah. and assume that I did read or listen to them. <laughs> now reading. <laughs> Open it up halfway. Yeah, yeah. Hard crinkle in one spot in the book. Uh, let me ask you this. From that moment that adjustment, that transition through a pandemic's uh, force, did you carry any of that into your, into your present? Like, I know, I know you work a lot and I know you travel a lot still, but has it shifted the, the like, value of your, of your own time, like that quiet time? Well, what happened was 
so that first month, I, I really took a break. It was nice being here with family, uh, playing with my niece, uh, you know, cooking here in the house. But then I remembered all these things I wanted to do. And nobody was, there was no deadlines. There were just things I wanted to do. Make albums, uh, finish compositions. You know, when I was, when I was in my 20s, I, w I would compose without a commission. I mean, I didn't get commissioned until around, yeah, maybe 2007 or so. But before that, I was just composing just to do it. Or I was just making music. I was playing guitar, practicing instruments, trying to learn new instruments. And so I got back into those things that, um, I got back to the things that didn't have a deadline, mm -hmm. let's say. The, the, the things that were in folders on the computer or in folders here in the studio. Um, I was drawing again. And so I rented a, a storage unit up here in the north side of town in, in Albuquerque and just started going up there every day and working and making music and uh, bought some new equipment, some recording gear, some instruments. And slowly things were kind of coming back. People were saying, oh, you know, I'm making this film. So I worked on this, made the music for this film, Lakota Nation versus United States. Mm -hmm and did the soundtrack for that and just going in there and making tons of music and giving them options and um again no deadline because it's like when is anybody going to get to go to the movie theater right um i got commissioned by this group in milwaukee uh, present music to write this piece for church organ and you know i was like oh great church organ another instrument i've never written for and this thing ends up winning the Pulitzer Prize a year later. <laughs> and so I credit just the calmness, the amount of time, the ability to focus and not be trying to do this on an airplane, you know, or in, in a hotel room and just, you know, working at a pace I should be working at. Um, and so I was, yeah, I was, I was, I got a lot done. I got, I got a lot of projects finished over those two years. And then of course things came back to normal. We came out of the cave and, uh, it's back like it was, and even more intense. Yeah, I'm probably traveling double the amount I was before, and uh, I'm like four times busier than I was. You are a Pulitzer <laughs> Prize winner, Raven Chacon. You were, you're true. a Pulitzer Prize winning composer. You mentioned that the, um, the piece for the church organ, you said is the, is the piece that, is that how it breaks down? Like it's, it's isolated to a composition? to win the Pulitzer, or is it an, an overview of work up until that moment? Do you know? They, they base it just on the single piece. On a single yeah. piece. Yeah, that, the piece was awarded. It's, it, uh, you're, they're not supposed to take into account other things that I've done. Oh, um, thank God. Yeah, yeah that could have been, it could have worked against me in a lot of ways if they had listened to Tenderizer, for instance. Um, well, no, that's, they're going to recognize Tenderizer's contribution. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Yeah, you can, get up, you can get the Pulitzer more than once, so uh, Tenderizer has a Yeah, has yeah, a shot. it's not about what we've done before, it's about <laughs> what's happening. But, um, uh, no, I was very surprised and, of course, honored that that uh, was recognized, because it's not just a composition, I mean, it's a statement about the church, it's a statement about uh, indigenous people's history with the, the Christian and Catholic church, churches, and... Um, you know, how they've suppressed us, how they've, you know, how that has contributed to us losing our languages. Right. And so um, for that to not only be recognized and the word spread about that composition, as the piece gets 
perform more and more, it has to be played in the church. Right. The church has to invite me to perform it there. They have to dialogue with the piece. And so, um, so I, I mean, it, that's another effect of that, of that winning that, that I was not planning on, and I'm happy that art can even do that. How many times have you produced this piece? It's been performed, I think it's or been it's performed. performed about 13 times, and I think I've been present for 11 of those. All in churches? They're all in churches. One of them was not in a church, but... Uh, is that the only place church organs exist? Like, is there, are there ways to cheat that, you know? Right, yeah, there's pipe organs. I mean, I, I, the score says... Church organ. I think it says church organ, yeah. But the idea is that it would be played in the church. And, right. And, um, well, and to confront those histories and, and to have that conversation. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the setting is very important. And, and churches are amazing acoustic spaces as well. They're, they're made right. to carry that voice of the sermon. And so, um, again, to, to, place this, to place this dissonance of this composition inside of that church has all this really profound uh, resonance inside, you know, this, this reflection of sound. This, it almost sounds like it's floating, like each pitch is trying to climb above the previous pitch. Hmm. And um, yeah, just, just to hear that um, multiple times for me is, is a new experience. Anytime I write a piece, you know, previous to winning this award, I, I was only expecting these things to get played once. Yeah. You know, you write something, it gets premiered, and that's it. Maybe somebody will play it again, but music's not like art. I mean, they don't, they rarely have the budgets to bring you out, you know, and, and come and see the thing played again. So this is, this is a totally new thing for me, to hear a piece played multiple times. Well, and it's the difference between a, a composer and a conductor, right? Like, you can have a conductor produce or uh, perform the music that you've composed without you having to be there. Right, yeah. And that's, that's the future of this piece, because I don't think I can keep going every time. But uh, I've gotten very good at you know, relaying the instructions to the conductor and the musical director about how to perform the piece. Well, then you could have it in multiple churches at the same time. That's right. Simultaneity, That's like right. The, the day of. <laughs> <laughs> um, I still have a question about, about the, the church organ. One, when you're composing this work, are you aware, you know the instrument that, it's perform, perform, that it'll be performed on, but are you testing notes in that space, or is there something that like, where you, you have it in theory that it'll live like this, but as you're talking about these pitches floating and climbing on top of one another, I don't think you could experience that unless you're in that acoustic right. space, right? Yeah, every, every church organ is different. Hmm. They're, all, they're, they're all very specific and particular to that church that they're in. And all of these organs have people who steward them. And so every time this does get performed, I have to you know, be in conversation with that person to f maybe find substitutes for my intended sounds and stops that are supposed to be pulled within the piece and um, find something that's going to match that appropriately for the, for the piece. A lot of it is just, you know, when, when they're rehearsing this, finding the balance that's going to, you know, sit right within the piece. I mean, the, the organ within this composition functions 
as if it's replacing where a choir would be, mm -hmm. replacing the actual voices. That's why these keyboard instruments were made. That's why the piano was made, to replace the orchestra. Right. And so it's not that it's necessarily going to overpower the other instruments, but it's, it's rather that it's sitting comfortably being embedded within the institution of the building. And so it's this presence that's in the background the whole time that's just kind of droning hmm. uh, until the middle of the piece when it kind of emerges and um, reveals its, its presence and power. Well, you've been, like you said, traveling more maybe now than you had before. This is the trade-off of, of, you know, um, <laughs> putting in all that work. It's like, okay, I get what I asked for, you know, I've, I've labored towards this and now, now I have to respond accordingly. How, how, are you, how have you adapted to these new demands on your life? Is there any like tips or tricks or are there ways that you found that actually help sustain you? Um, or, or, you know, at, at its very core, have you figured out a way to like survive all of this? Well, I mean, this, this Pulitzer Award happened in 2022. And so that year from 2022 until last summer was intense. I mean, it was, it, it was the most busy I had ever been and the most, to be honest with you, most stressful because I was taking on it. I wasn't saying no to anything. And projects were still compounding on top of each other from the pandemic, from pre-pandemic, on top of the things that I, like I said, was wanting to do on my own. And then last year, this other thing happened where I was awarded a MacArthur. Mm -hmm. And um, I, was, I was a little bit stressed there thinking, oh my God, like, it's not gonna stop. I mean, like, this is a good problem to have, to, to be commissioned to make new work, to be busy, but then, you know, that comes with this opportunity through the award itself to slow down, I think, to not have to take every gig to, to make a living. And so I think what it's going to do is get me back to that position of just doing the things I want to do, doing the projects. If I want to just make an album of me playing guitar, for instance, I mean, I don't know if anybody wants to hear that, but I could do that, you know, and it doesn't have to make money. Musicians yeah. don't really make money anyway, but uh, you know, I think there's there's, it's it came at a time when I think uh, I had to slow down anyway. Yeah, because I was just doing every gig. I was also teaching multiple places, um, teaching at IAI. I was teaching at Columbia, uh, in the School of Architecture. Next semester, I'm teaching at Chicago at the School of the Art Institute. I like teaching, but it's also very demanding. So um, I think in the, in the near future, I'll take on less of those gigs. I was also doing a lot of you know, other kinds of visiting artists lectures. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story, is during pandemic, I had to give a Zoom lecture to an uh, art class. But you were doing some kind of talk or something on Zoom as well. So, I'm sure. So I was watching your Zoom <laughs> while I was giving my <laughs> while I was giving my PowerPoint on uh, Zoom. And, uh, that sounds accurate. Yeah, because I think you were going to talk about Sweetland and something. We had just come off that, so I was like, I want to see what Chinoop is going to talk about. <laughs> but I'm, I got to do my own. So uh, 
Yeah. You know. He's going to ruin it. He's going to ruin yeah. it. I should have just turned the two, you know, facing oh, each other. I and... was waiting for the feedback loop yeah. of, of Zoom worlds colliding like that, <laughs> like the infinity mirror um, of our lives. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm fascinated how you've remained mysterious to me. Raven, <laughs> with all of this, MacArthur's and Pulitzer's, uh, there's a certain, there's a certain, uh, something that I, I think you actively participated in, maintaining and keeping something of yourself. There's something hmm. mysterious in that, where I'm, I feel like I, I get overexposed and I overexpose myself. And I'm, you know, just from artist to artist, I'm, I'm fascinated with that. I don't, I don't want you to give up your secret on this podcast, but know that I see it and I want to ask you about it when we're not recording so I can adjust my own lifestyles. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you sometime. <laughs> really, I mean, it's back to the zigzagging. I mean, when somebody thinks they know where you're going, you just go and do something else. And, you know, I think that could be um, a scary place to put oneself, but I have nothing better to do. Yeah. It's the best thing to do yeah. to make yourself uncomfortable while you're alive. Yeah. We get a long time sitting in a dirt bed. <laughs> Cozy <laughs> as all hell. Well, I wanted to thank you again. I know um, Ginger interviewed you the last time you spoke with us on Broken Boxes, so I'm really excited to actually chop it up with you and, and dive in uh, a little bit and hear about where you're at. I know that there are great things. I'm excited for, I'm excited for me from you, you know, like, like seeing you in these positions actually, uh, uh, anchors myself. I mean, I, I always see, I never feel like jealous, you know, I'm always like, Oh shit, anything is possible. You know, like you, all you, all you got to do is keep doing it. Like, and, and stay honest and true to, the, to what you believe in and, and stand by your, uh, your, I don't know if virtue is the right word, but like what you believe in, your, your, there's integrity in, in what you do. And I, and I, I recognize that and I, I appreciate it. So um, selfishly, I'm excited for myself by seeing your success. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That means, means a ton. I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, native artists, we, we need to support each other. We need to be excited when we see things we like. And, and I hear a bit of what you're saying there. And I get excited when I see things I don't like because it means somebody might have taken a risk. Yeah. And it's something that I surely have never seen before. And maybe I keep looking at it. Maybe I even have a problem with it. And I, it's, it's something that I need to resolve in myself or I'm trying to understand why it's in the universe. And to me, that's, what, that's why we make this stuff because it didn't exist before it existed. And um, same thing, I get inspired. I think that's, the, that's what we're supposed to be doing is constantly getting inspired and uh, it helps you make your own work. Mm. Thank you for that, Raven. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I certainly did. And I'm excited to uh, see what the future brings and unfolds and, and um, live in those strange and uncomfortable spaces and be inspired by it. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank you, Chinupa. Thank you, Ginger. All right.
Hey! <laughs> 